1: What areas of our lives were governed by constitutional law? When asked about what constitutional law is, Americans tend to think of notable Supreme Court cases such as the abortion law case Roe v. Wade, or the civil rights landmark of Brown v. Board of Education. But vast swaths of our lives are governed by, of all things, the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. This is just one of the fascinating facts we learned from the 2022 book The Practice of American Constitutional Law by H. Jefferson Powell. Powell robustly and movingly argues that those Americans who feel that the Supreme Court and constitutional law itself have become so politicized that justice is now unattainable and that raw power has replaced dispassionate legal analysis in our polity are mistaken. He contends that those who dwell in the world of the actual practice of constitutional law are people operating in good faith, with identifiable toolkits, as he puts it. Powell shows how everyone involved has to determine if a legal case is even a matter of constitutional law specifically, and if so, what part or parts of the Constitution are concerned and possibly being violated. One of the great strengths of the book is the delineation of, some of, the, some of, of who some of these actors are, from congresspeople to Department of Justice lawyers, to legal advisors to presidents, to judges at all levels, to lawyers in the nonprofit advocacy sector. Powell shows how those, those engaged in the practice of constitutional law go about their work, be they giants of American jurisprudence such as John Marshall, to unnamed state legislators of our own day. Paul makes the case in spite of the normal human tendency to be influenced by our backgrounds and attitudes when thrashing out contentious matters, the practice of American constitutional law operates within clear parameters and procedures that to a large extent result in justice or at least a plausible attempt to achieve it. Powell's plea for a more sympathetic attitude towards judges, legislators, and legal advocates is helped by the fact that his book is filled with vivid word portraits of figures such as the Supreme Court justices Robert H. Jackson, William Rehnquist, David Souter, who comes across better in Powell's book than does in many other accounts, and of course, John Marshall. Powell's book is ideal for the non-lawyer who wants a better understanding of the nuts and bolts of constitutional law, who the players are, and what aspects of constitutional law affect us in our daily lives. Powell fascinatingly shows that those include everything from guns in school zones to violence against women to the regulation of the length of trucks on state highways. Powell persuasively and engagingly makes his case that those who make cases are not malign influences twisting the law for partisan purposes, but by and large, honorable, honorable people doing their best to apply the text and thrust of the Constitution in defensible, sensible, and yes, just fashions. Let's hear from Professor Powell himself.
0: Well hope I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you about uh, about the book. Um, but the thing I'm the most excited about is the opportunity that you and I have to make a point that goes way beyond the book, which is that uh, all Americans, regardless of uh, our particular political and moral commitments, all of us have a stake in the in the good health of of the constitutional system because it is, Got plenty of flaws. It's been plenty of mistakes, including tragic ones. But it is a crucial and I think extremely valuable part of what makes the American Republic work.
1: Well, I'm I'm I I think you succeeded in that because I felt very much empowered as a citizen to learn. I I didn't realize, for example, how much a part of the Constitution affect my life and the lives of every american that i didn't expect for example i expected a lot more talk in the book about the bill of rights and free speech for example but but the the commerce clause looms very large <laughs> in the book and i and i thought i said to myself who knew uh i'd like to ask as you've already said what the main the main point of the book you you hope to uh, you hope to accomplish you think you achieve that um well i don't know yet
0: i mean we'll see <laughs> i hope so Um, I think I say something like the following in the preface, you know, if uh, for people who know a lot about constitutional law, um, I I will succeed succeeded if they say, well, you know, I never seen it put together like this. But yeah, I already knew all this stuff. Uh, What's new about this book is just that he's put it all together. And for folks who don't know much about constitutional law, I'm hoping that they'll come away with a sense that, yes, of course, people's um, what the great John Marshall said: People's wishes, affections, and general theories affect their judgment. But that doesn't mean that we don't share, regardless of our disagreements. We don't share a common practice, and that practice is, you know, is something that that you don't have to be an expert lawyer to understand.
1: I think you make a good point in the book too that if people's p- views on the law are influenced by their backgrounds and moral moral fiber and moral leanings, that's not necessarily, une- that, as you say, it's not unexpected, it's not necessarily wrong either, that that makes for a more humane and, and vibrant dialogue, is that correct?
0: Absolutely. Look, um, people, both uh, ordinary people and um, uh, social scientists, sometimes say with the, an air of either surprise or um, uh, dismay that, wow, you can see a correlation between the Supreme Court justices' Uh, just, you know, which side they line up on in various cases and what we think are their political commitments. Well, number one, you could be surprised sometimes. But number two, of course, you expect that. And you just said it. You said it exactly right, Hope. Um, In a republic that is meant to be inclusive of people with many different viewpoints, we should expect a system that allows the articulation of those viewpoints uh, and doesn't try to suppress them. Uh, while at the same time enabling the the system to reach decisions when it has to, and, and that includes you know saying to one side you lose, the other side you win. Uh, so I I think you're you you put it right. Well.
1: Well, good. Well, one of one of the one of the aspects of your book that I found quite fascinating is. I should have known this, but I didn't realize, and you make the point that Americans are almost uniquely governed by constitutional law, and you say, in a way that's not wholly paralleled in other countries. Are there any countries that come close to us in, in being bound by a constitutional framework?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, the existence of written constitutions and written constitutions that are, um, that are enforced by uh, the judiciary, you know, that's now a, an extremely widespread aspect of the world, although it's one that's quite fragile. Uh, we see some some cases in, for example, uh, the European Union, where countries that have written constitutions and supposedly have judicial review, that uh, that's being uh, eroded by um, governments that don't really want opposition. Uh, but for this country, our constitutional system is, it's tied up with who we are in a fashion that I think may, could well be unique, I, if there are count- other examples that wouldn't surprise me, but. Uh, I mean, think about the name of the country, the United States of America. <laughs> the, the very name reflects the constitutional system.
1: That's a that's a very that's a very good point. And one of the things I remember is, even as children, we were we were we were able to say, "I'm going to take you all the way to the Supreme Court."
0: <laughs> <laughs> we used to talk about, "Don't make a federal case out of it."
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Don't make a federal case out of it. That's true. I, I, I still say that.
0: Oh, I do too. Um, <laughs>
1: Well what uh, you mentioned the 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 fact of constitutions and I was just po- remembering that just within the past year or so that Chile the people of Chile voted one down that they it, it was after much much uh work on it for by a, by a special committee and so forth they just said this is too complex it's too complicated and ours is quite short. is that correct or ours is
0: very short hmm. and and Chief Justice Marshall uh, said in what some people, many people, me, me included, think is the most important and greatest of all constitutional decisions, McCulloch against Maryland. Mm. Uh, Chief Justice Marshall said, the, the, the shortness of our constitution is intrinsic to what it is. And his argument was, you know, along the lines you just suggested, if you tried to put in all the details, for, first place, you couldn't, all the details of setting up and running a national government, um, A, you couldn't, and B, no one could get their mind around it. I always say that uh, I've got a couple of colleagues who understand the Internal Revenue Code, but none of the rest of us do. It's too complicated. But if the Constitution is to be our Constitution, it has to be something that that all of us can have a you know shot at getting some sense of.
1: Well, you mentioned McCulloch versus Maryland. I like to ask, I know that in junior high or high school, many, most, all of us, I would say most Americans are are given that phrase and we sort of absorb it as something, oh, this is important. And then we completely forget what it is. So I wonder if you could give us a, a quick pressy of, of, it plays such a huge part in your book. So could you give us a, a quick rundown of, of that case?
0: Sure. The question before the court was whether a scoundrel named McCulloch had to pay a penalty under Maryland's tax law. The sca- McCulloch was, uh, was in fact, engaged in criminal fraud um, at the time. But he was, he was the cashier, which meant actually he was the manager of the Maryland office of the Bank of the United States that Congress had created three years earlier. Uh, and Maryland, the Maryland legislature just didn't like the bank. It, it was uh, the bank's. The bank was initially extremely popular, but then there was a uh, there was an economic downturn. The bank made the downturn worse, or at least its critics thought it did by its um, by calling in debts. And so, in many states, Maryland included, uh, the national bank uh, was an unpopular entity. So, what Maryland was really trying to do was make the bank's operations in Maryland um, uh, ex- more expensive, and it maybe even drive it out of Maryland. Mm. And so, they had there was a um, Tax that the bank had to pay if it uh did certain things. And if the tax wasn't paid, a penalty was uh was levied on the um on in this case the the guy running the Maryland office, Mr. McCulloch. Uh McCulloch refused to pay the penalty, and his argument was, I don't have to, uh, because Maryland can't tax the national bank, which is a federal entity or at least a federal instrumentality. Mm. Uh the Maryland court said, no, we don't buy that. You have to pay the penalty. And the case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. For a unanimous court, Chief Justice Marshall held that, number one, Congress had the power to create the bank. And number two, since power, Congress had that power, Maryland could not tax the bank because in doing so, Maryland was setting its own parochial interest over against those of the nation, as articulated by Congress. Uh, and Mar- the issue itself was of great importance at the time. Uh, and of course, the Federal Reserve System is not um, something of, of unimportance now. But the the real lasting significance of McCulloch is the way that Marshall thinks through the problems. Because he, uh, he goes at, he explains at length the way he's thinking about um, how to resolve the question, is the bank authorized by the Constitution? How to resolve the question, can Maryland tax the bank if the bank is authorized? And the ways he explains uh, his thinking have themselves become really canonical uh, among American constitutional lawyers and on the Supreme Court. We still march to Marshall's uh, tune.
1: Well, that's that's very helpful. Uh, I'd like to ask in terms of things that preceded Marshall, I jumped ahead a little bit. You you talk in the book a lot about uh, the the common law and what a huge role it played in the thinking of the founders such as Marshall and his and his predecessors or his colleagues could you tell us what the common law is and does it does it play a role throughout the world even today as a legacy of the british empire or, or do other countries for example india or canada or do we do we are we more common law oriented than other nations in other words all
0: right the, the what the common law is is in origin, is the, the law administered by the royal courts in England in the Middle Ages and and after. And that law, uh, and specifically what we, people have in mind when they use the term common law, it's the law articulated by the courts. Yes, of course, once there's a parliament, the acts of parliament are administered by the courts and uh, and become part of the system as a whole, but at the heart of the medieval and early modern English law weren't the relatively infrequent acts of parliament, but rather the law as it was articulated by ongoing judicial decisions. uh, So that if you really wanted to understand uh, the right way to, um, for example, to decide a contractual dispute uh, in a early modern English court, there might not be an act of parliament that addressed it at all. What you'd be doing is reading what earlier judges had said was the right way to handle the contract issue. Uh, So that's what it was. the common law uh, was exported, as it were, uh, throughout the basically the world of the British Empire, including, of course, that rebellious bit of it that uh, left early on, and is called the United States. And so you, you mentioned Canada and India. With the exception of one of the Indian states, India and Canada are both common law countries. Um, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, of course, except for Scotland, which is not a common law, uh, has a different legal system.
1: How, um, how, like, how like them.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's, that's for you. Um, uh, so there, there, a lot of the world is common law. Uh, and if you, uh, and that part of it is, is in I think invariably uh, a part of the world that at some point was ruled by uh, Britain. Uh, the other great legal system is the, what we call the civil law. Uh, that has its origins in Roman law, and then um, uh, in uh, particularly in its modern articulation or rearticulation in the uh, Code Napoleon in France. Uh, and uh, the civil law uh, is dominant in the rest of the world. In <laughs> fact, pr- pretty much you can say is a formal matter. And of course, there are lots of other systems of legal thinking um, that uh, uh, that exist in non-European cultures, but as a formal matter, pretty much the entire world, uh, regardless of what, where you're at, is either a common law jurisdiction or a civil law jurisdiction.
1: Hmm. Would you say that, that the common law is a little more uh, diff, um, average citizen-friendly than the civil law?
0: Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, the, the, the great civil lawyers strive to make the written law and the, the, the core and heart of Civil law is the code, mm-hmm. written law. Judicial decisions and what judges say are very much secondary, uh, at least in theory, and in some, some are in practice, to the, the written law. And the goal of great civil lawyers is to make the law, the written law, pellucid so that everyone, anyone can understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on, on the other hand, um, yes, it's true that the common law generates, in great common law judges, um, the common law world generates opinions, judicial opinions, that may be more friendly, easier to read uh, than um, than complicated uh, legal provisions. But you've got to bear in mind, number one, most modern law in common law countries is, in fact, dependent on statutes and regulations and so on. We, we do different things to some extent with the statutes and regulations than our civil law cousins. Uh, but. If you're looking for if you're trying to resolve most issues in a modern American lawsuit, you're very likely looking at, at least in large measure, the same kinds of things, statutes and regulations that civil lawyers do. <laughs> and then the final point is great lawyers in the common law tradition, great judges read, read opinions that, you know, anybody can understand and enjoy. Most common law judges aren't great judges.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Well. Related to the the, the idea of, of law in general, you write in the book, and I, this is interesting, I didn't know this, I, I should have, but it says there is never no law to apply in American constitutional law, which kind of surprised me because I think of it as sort of a separate grand um, realm of its own, but you make the point that it's a very day-to-day kind of law. I mean, it governs us at all levels of government, is that correct?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I'm I'm being uh, I'm being a little cheeky there. A very famous um, administrative lawyer uh, many many decades ago uh, uh, created the idea in administrative law that uh, on some questions of agency action, there's no law to apply. Yeah. So I'm 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 saying with and because I don't need to get into that discussion. I, I don't bother to even cite the uh, the origins of the expression. But I'm I'm saying that in American constitutional is true in administrative law, in American constitutional law, it is an axiomatic truth that you always can answer the question, and I I demonstrate this and some other things to my first year law students uh, at the end at the end of their very first assignment. I have three questions, uh, and I rotate them from over the year, so I don't just do the same thing every time and have students just pass down what they think are <laughs> the answers. Uh, and the three questions are ones where, yes, it's obvious it's a constitutional law question, and no, it's not at all obvious what the answer is, and so you've got to figure it out, because there must be an answer. And I'll give you one of the questions I use. Uh, in fact, I, I use as an example, I think, in the book. Um, who presides over the Senate when the vice president oh. is being tried?
1: Yes, that's a fascinating uh, section of your book, because you go into great detail about how this complex matter is so complex.
0: (laughs) Right. Now, we we know there has to be an answer. Mm. We know there is someone's got to preside if the House of Representatives impeaches the vice president. The Senate has the duty then under the constitutional text to try the vice president. We have to have someone presiding. Who is it? We know who presides. When the president is being tried, it's the chief justice because the constitutional text says so. We know who presides. Uh, when it's uh, anybody other than the president or vice president, it's the president of the Senate. But the president of the Senate, the Constitution tells us, is the vice president. So if you thought you could just read the words of the Constitution and get an answer, the vice president presides when the vice president, president is being tried. That, of course, is nonsense. <laughs> can't be the right answer. And yet we must answer the question. It's a question of constitutional law. It must have an answer. And so then I, I use it both in my class and in the book to illustrate that what you do when you've got a question, you know it's a constitutional question, but the text doesn't give you an answer. And of course, the text, while the text is, the, is by axiom, it's the articulate voice of we, the people. It is controlling. It is axiomatically authoritative. Um, it doesn't answer lots of questions just by staring
1: at it. Well, I was going to say, in terms of another mystery that you address quite intriguingly, is you, you basically say the Ninth Amendment doesn't seem to have any discernible purpose. Is that correct? Or
0: no? Um, I suggest that one historical explanation uh, for the Ninth Amendment, the one that I find persuasive, in fact, is that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments uh, were uh, originally drafted by Madison, although they, their wording was changed quite a bit in the process of Congress deciding to propose them. Um, and the, the two amendments, let me just, since we're talking about them, we need to, as it were, have them on the table. The Ninth Amendment says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the Tenth Amendment says, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Now, just talking about the Ninth Amendment, the one about uh, the fact that some rights are enumerated uh, does not to lead you to think that other rights are not retained. One historical explanation for what that was meant to do, and I think it's the correct one, it was meant to say that if someone says, "Okay, this Constitution has, this federal Constitution has certain rights that it describes that belong to the people, uh, therefore, State Bill of Rights, the rights that are protected by state constitutions, they're no longer in effect. They've been abolished by the the federal constitution. And the Ninth Amendment say, no, 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 no. This doesn't affect anything that, say, a state, the Constitution of North Carolina protects. It just federal constitutional rights are in addition to whatever rights you have under the state constitution. And the Tenth Amendment is similar about powers. It's meant to block the reasoning that well, since Congress has all these vast powers, it must have all power. And the 10th Amendment says, no, it doesn't. The powers, you know, the Constitution gives the federal government some powers, but not all powers. So the two together are simply meant to avoid mistaken uh, understandings of the Constitution, the federal Constitution. I think that's what it originally uh, was about. Uh, and we're, no one argues that the existence of the federal Bill of Rights abolishes the North Carolina Declaration of Rights anymore, so the Ninth Amendment doesn't play a significant role. But that's because we all accept what it says.
1: So I think your point in the book about the Ninth Amendment seemed to be, to me as a reader, that there's a such there's some things that are just not clear, and that that that's, that's the debate, the whole field of constitutional law, and that we have to, you have to allow for a certain ambiguity or. or and people have to accept that you can't just say there has to be a right answer because there, it's a matter of debate. And that's the whole point, that there, 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 right? That you allow for discussion among good, good faith, people in good faith.
0: Well, you raise a really interesting question. Um, in, in, in hard, contestable issues, there are lots of ones that are not hard and not contestable. Um, California, which has three trillion people, and Wyoming, which has 27, both get two senators. Mm. That's whether you like it or not, whether you think it makes sense or not, that is clear and not arguable. Um, but lots of things are, um, as you suggest, are arguable, are debatable. Um, with respect to these hard debatable issues, should we say that there's no right? There is a right answer, or wrong, or lots of wrong answers? Or should we say just you know people disagree? Well, I think both things are true. Mm. I myself think that there are right answers even for the hard questions. What I do not think is that on some of the hard questions, we can expect to ever come to an agreement on what the right answer is. You and I may be equally smart, acting in equal good faith, listening as hard as we can to the other person's argument, thinking about our own arguments as self-critically as possible, and we may simply come to different conclusions. I myself personally think that one of us is right and one of us is wrong, or maybe both of us are wrong. Um, But that doesn't mean that, number one, that we can ever reach consensus. And it in particular doesn't mean that uh, one should be arrogant or uh, unself-critical about how right one's own views are. It's a virtue in constitutional law to be self-critical. But I tell my students that's true in all thinking. In fact, I tell them, you don't know what you think. Really, until you understand the argument against what you think in its strongest form.
1: Mm. Yeah, you use the term. That's
0: constitutional law. Uh,
1: that's, that's a very fair uh, a, a answer to those of us that get frustrated by a certain ruling or something. They're doing the best they can and they're arguing from, from a position of. of of seek, truth-seeking, <laughs> uh, you use the term methodolo- methodological eclecticism. Can you explain what you mean by that? And who, who was an example of a constitutional advocate that, you, that, you, that employed that, that school of thought, or do they all do? They all have to just use what methods are available to them to the best they can.
0: Everybody does, mm-hmm. although people differ about the extent to which they're comfortable with uh, using all the methods that you find in history. Um, So, for example, um, uh, Justice Harlan, the second Justice Harlan, uh, was somebody who was very comfortable in using all of the different methods uh, that um, that history had indicated or had shown constitutional lawyers and judges uh, using in their attempt to resolve legal issues. Uh, Harlan's great friend, Justice Hugo Black, uh, wasn't comfortable with that. He did it because, as I say, none of us can escape the, the, the sort of the overall practice, which has many different methods in it. But Black's real emphasis was on the text. And so as much as possible, Black tried to reduce, um, reduce is the wrong word, Black tried to solve constitutional problems by a strong focus on the text, more so than Harlan, who would look at things in addition to the text with greater comfort. So that, for example, um, when Justice Black uh, met a First Amendment free speech uh, issue, he he always carried out a pocket copy of the Constitution. (laughs) I carry one to class. (laughs) And he would just pull it out and say, my copy of the Constitution says Congress shall make no law. I read no law to mean no law. (laughs) And Justice Harlan would say something more like, well, it isn't true, Hugo, that there's we don't recognize some situations in which freedom of speech can be abridged. We, in fact, do, and we have good reasons. On the other hand, the text does, it's a sweeping command, and, and therefore, in, in a dispute between governmental authority and freedom of speech, most of the time, freedom of speech is going to win because the text indicates that, and our, our historical tradition does. But, but let's talk about this particular case, and let's look at all the different issues that legal tradition says are relevant. And blacks, meanwhile, muttering themselves, it says no law. It says no law.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, in terms of of the, that many issues were not not just a matter of law, but but you you make the point in the book that people are are accused the Supreme Court in particular these days of being political. That they say they're 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 roaming away from the law to express their own political views. And I'm going to give some examples. I hope you don't mind. I wrote this out because I. It mm-hmm. seems to me that when Americans complain about that the the uh, court is is too political that. After all, in the days of John Marshall versus Thomas Jefferson, to Dred Scott, to Lincoln on the matter of habeas corpus, to the free speech cases of World War One, and to FDR's court packing to debacle, to the Warren Court on a plethora of issues like policing, civil rights, oh. prayer, public school, contraception, to the mess of the nomination of Carswell and Hainsworth under Richard Nixon, to the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, there have been politics and fury forever. I mean, are yep. Americans just, are there, is, is it, is some it, what do you believe that the Supreme Court now is more politicized than ever, or is it just always that way? Or has there ever been an era where everything where comedy ruled and everybody was just agreed on the on the on the facts and there was no politics involved? There were no politics involved.
0: Justice Frankfurter once said that when you become, becoming a constitutional judge is like entering a nunnery. You know, you you give up all other attachments, <laughs> and that's of course baloney. <laughs> um, People can't leave behind their skin. Justice Benjamin Cardozo said, you can't see with any of eyes but your own. Yeah. And so someone who goes on the court brings with them who they are. Now, the, the, the sound point in Justice Frankfurter's overheated rhetoric is that but the judge is not meant to act on the court just to carry out his or her, to borrow Marshall's words again, wishes, affections, general theories, to do whatever his or her political party wants, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the judge's job. In fact, that's a faithless, wrong, abusive office if the judge does that. Um, The judge is meant to come to the best answers that the judge can conscientiously using arguments within the law. Um, But to answer your question, there's several points. Number one, politics has always been the context in which constitutional law and the Supreme Court operate, because the constitutional law is about political matters. Yeah. So of course, there's an overlap. John Marshall, uh, I don't see any reason to doubt that John Marshall's constitutional decisions were reached in good faith and really what he thought was the best way to answer the constitutional problem that he had before him. But his answers track very closely what you would expect a Federalist with his background to, in fact, think prefer. That's not surprising. Um, that didn't mean as Jefferson, who was his cousin, but they didn't like each other. Uh, cousin Thomas Jefferson's uh, thought that Marshall was just importing his politics. Um, and that's, so, so yes, throughout history, uh, there have been political controversies about what the court is doing, and people who are critics of the court have suggested the court's members are being faithless to their job. They're acting as politicians, not as judges. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised when that is the criticism today. It's always been, the, the fact, the number one kind of criticism. Um, the second point is we shouldn't be I've said this now at least twice, and I'm sorry, I'll say it one more time. We shouldn't be surprised when a judge's decisions as a whole bear some resemblance to what you might have guessed the judge's decisions would be based on what he or she was doing and thinking before they went on the bench. That's not surprising and it doesn't prove they're doing anything wrong. Third point, I'm not, we're not being Pollyannish when we, we do this. There can be intellectually corrupt judges. Mm-hmm. Of course there can be. The way you identify them, though, is not by the fact you disagree with their answer. It's when you identify that their reasoning cannot be taken seriously. And I'll give you a great example. The Dred Scott decision, 1857, one of the low points in all the US Supreme Court's history. The Supreme Court uh, rules against Mr. Scott, saying that he can't bring his freedom, uh, his, he had been a slave, enslaved person. And uh, Dred, the Dred Scott decision held that he could not bring a suit for freedom in federal court because he was not a citizen. And Chief Justice Taney, going beyond what he needed to say, uh, said, and furthermore, Black people cannot be citizens of the United States. The Constitution does not permit it. And one of Pawnee's reasons was that's what the founders thought. That's what that's the way they acted. There were no black citizens in when the Constitution was made. Justice Benjamin Cardozo, uh, Benjamin uh, Benjamin Curtis, Justice Curtis, wrote a dissent in which he pointed out that four states in four states at the time the Constitution was made, black men who otherwise met the requirements of, um, of the election law, black men voted. So in those four states, black voters were part of the voting body that made the constitutional law. Mm-hmm. Taney was just, and, and Taney did not change his opinion after ben Curtis produced the evidence. That's just intellectual dishonesty. That's an intellectually corrupt opinion quite apart from, and in addition to the fact it's morally abhorrent. Yeah. So if, you want, if, if you're looking at the current court, come down to brass tacks, and you think that the Dobbs abortion decision is terribly wrong, or you think it's obviously right, and you are also minded to think that the judge justices who are on the side opposite from the one you think is right, you're minded to think that they're not just wrong, they're intellectually corrupt. Yeah. You need to be looking at Is there something in their reasoning that you can identify that's wrong in the way that Taney's reasoning in Dred Scott was clearly not defensible? If you identify, if you think you've identified that, then you have grounds for saying that judge is just acting illegitimately because their reasoning doesn't make sense in light of constitutional law. If all you can say is, yeah, it holds together, I just think it comes to the wrong conclusion, then you haven't got a basis for challenging the judge's legitimacy.
1: Have there been any credible arguments to the to the Dobbs decision of Justice Alito's reasoning or
0: credible or, arguments supporting him or, against or a,
1: again against him? We're well, saying that saying that he's, I mean, or is it, it could you make a plausible case that he was intellectually dishonest or, or corrupt or just that people don't like what he said?
0: Three justices wrote a long, elaborate dissent arguing that he was wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: the question is debatable. Uh, I think there there are issues that the Alito opinion leaves unresolved and that the court will ultimately have to um, may have to address. But no, I'm not going to say either about Justice Alito or the three dissenters who all three joined, uh, jointly wrote the dissent. I'm not going to say that either opinion displays intellectual dishonesty of the sort that um, that Tawney did in Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, That doesn't mean I don't think there's a right answer. I think one of the conclusions was right and the other was wrong. Um, But that's a disagreement with the justices I disagree with that comes from, you know, my use of the practice of American constitutional law. And they came to a different conclusion.
1: In the book, you say most constitutional lawyers are not rigorous Adherence to any theory, and you also say that no theory is dominant in constitutional law. And I was a little bit surprised by that, given the prominence of the originalists and the members of Federalist Society in recent years. Are they not driven by theory, and do they not is would they, would they disagree with you on that in that in that characterization that there is no theory because that's their whole that's their whole persona, right?
0: Oh, people who call themselves originalists, and for that matter, a lot of people who write about originalism but are opponents. They would all join together. They would agree that Powell is completely wrong when he says the originalism debate isn't nearly as important as the debaters think it is. Mm. So let me tell you why I think I'm right and all those other illustrious people, Supreme Court justices, famous <laughs> law professors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Why? They're all wrong and I'm right. <laughs> um why I think that. Um, no one responsible thinks that, l- let's just say we all, the Supreme Court becomes nine zero originalist and furthermore announces that all constitutional law decisions must be based on the original public meaning, which is one of the varieties of originalism. So that's that's now that's the Supreme Court's view of the law. Um, no one responsible thinks that a federal district judge can look at the original meaning arguments and say, well, you know what? In this case, the Supreme Court justices got the original public meaning wrong, and so I'm not going to follow them. I'm going to follow my view of the original public meaning, And that's not because the judge would necessarily be wrong. She might be right and the Supreme Court wrong. The Supreme Court justices often get history wrong. They're not very good at it as a a rule. Um, But it's because our system won't tolerate one where the lower court judge disobeys the Supreme Court decision because the lower court judge, even rightly, thinks the Supreme Court's gotten something wrong. So, for the rest of us, and the rest of us means all lower federal court judges, all state judges dealing with federal constitutional issues, all lawyers in other contexts, like Department of Justice lawyers, all the rest of us, for all the rest of us, original public meaning is not very often going to be what we get to rely on because we're going to be bound by the Supreme Court's decisions. And at this point in time, way over 200 years after the system got up and running, there's a lot of Supreme Court. case law to deal with. So most of the time, we're going to be doing exactly the same thing. Even after the court, remember I said nine zero. they say every original public meeting is the only legitimate basis. Even after that, you and I and all the rest of us, but those nine folks are going to, and law professors, um, are going to be having to do the same thing we've been doing now, taking Supreme Court decisions, looking at how they work, figuring out their logic, trying to apply that to, um, to new situations. So originalism, if you get down to practical matters and the, as the book the title of my book suggests, I'm really interested in constitutional law as your practice. Get down to practical matters. Original, the originalist anti-originalist debate is mostly about when the Supreme Court can throw out its own case law because it decides that, well, the originalists say based on original public meaning, this decision is egregiously wrong. So it's really a debate over something that's very important. I mean, Dobbs is a good example. Dobbs held that the right to uh, to choose to terminate the pregnancy uh, was not a right recognized uh, in the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment, and therefore the right doesn't exist. Dobbs is very important. Uh, of course it's very important. And the originalist thinking that Justice Alito used in his majority opinion uh, is based on an originalist argument. So it's important, but it's, its effect on the world is right at the top. It's the rest of constitutional law remains sort of unchanged. So that's part of the reason I think the originalist and their opponents, I'm not just criticizing the originalist. I think they're all having a bigger argument than actually its practical significance yeah. is. Um, the other reason, I think, uh, this is one that Justice Thomas, who is the great if anyone is a, an originalist in the world, it is Justice Thomas. Mm. Um, Justice Thomas, in his opinion of the court in the Bruin Second Amendment case from last June, mm. the one where it struck down, the court struck down uh, uh, an aspect of New York's um, uh, gun laws in the name of the First Second Amendment. Justice Thomas's opinion, the most interesting thing in the whole thing to me is he has a discussion. He, he's talking about when can government regulate the carrying of guns? Uh, and, you know, it's like he's like Justice Harlan. Remember, Justice Harlan, when Hugo Black says, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, Harlan said, Well, that's not literally true, with Hugo. Well, Justice Thomas is saying to people who say, Well, the Second Amendment means there can be no interference with carrying guns. Justice Thomas's position is that's not, not true. The Second Amendment may not say so in its text, but there are limits, there are situations where government can regulate and indeed forbid, in certain circumstances, the carrying of guns. Um, Well, how do you determine what those are? And Justice Thomas says, you determine that by looking at the original public meaning of the Second Amendment. What situations did the founders uh, think were ones in which government could regulate or forbid the carrying of weapons? So you go, you, you're looking at original public meaning. But then Justice Thomas goes on to explain that. This doesn't mean you're looking for um, an exact correspondence between the modern gun regulation and what the founders accepted. What you're looking for are those regulations that the founders would have accepted, and then seeing if they are analogous to the modern gun regulation that you have to decide is valid or not. So the history is the basis for drawing an analogy, not the beginning and end of the argument. Well, at that point, uh, I started, I thought about writing a little essay saying the end, meaning the, you know, the, the termination of originalism, and I was just gonna credit Justice Thomas with having ended it, uh, because at the point in time he says, start with original public meaning, but then move beyond it to the modern case and look for analogies, at that point, there's not that much difference between him and anybody else because that move by analogy from something that you know is the law to the modern situation that's what that's the core of the common law yeah. Now does that mean there's no difference between Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor? No, of course there's a big difference. Thomas puts you know much more weight on um, on original public meeting than justice Sotomayor and um, and there are all, the, all kinds of other ways in which they would be. Uh, they, they would display differences in their reasoning. But there, But what Thomas's ruined opinion shows, and I'm delighted he did because I thought it, uh, and he just proved it, is that originalist judges are not leaving the world of practice of American constitutional law. They're just emphasizing one side of it more than some other people within the practice emphasize. Well,
1: I was going to say, it's very helpful to have that delineated about is is this is this is government allowed in that case to regulate guns? And one of the most effective takeaways for me as a general reader of your book is that you make the point that there's a what you called a twofold uh, mode of inquiry for all constitutional actors. Does mm-hmm. is government authorized to do this or is it prohibited from doing this? And that just was a very helpful boiling everything down to these two questions. Can you give some examples of, of that?
0: I will, but let me just uh, quickly say, and that's absolutely crucial, and it's part of the way in which American constitutional law and the American Constitution actually can, they achieve John Marshall's hope that they are understandable to people other than lawyers who spent 20 years thinking about it. <laughs> uh, because all, as I tell my, in the, on the second day of my first year constitutional law class, I tell my students, all constitutional problems without any exception, always boil down to one or more questions, and the questions always, with no exceptions, take the form of, Can government is the government authorized to do it? And if government is authorized, is uh, government prohibited by the Constitution from doing it? Let me give you some examples. Um, in 1919, the Supreme Court decided a case called Abrams against the United States. Yeah. Mr. Abrams had been convicted of violating the Espionage Act uh, not because he was a spy, but because in the Espionage Act enacted during World War I, uh, Congress had made it a crime to engage in certain kinds of criticisms of uh, the government and the war effort and so on. Uh, and Mr. Abrams had written a um, pamphlet in which he tried to persuade American workers that if you're, doing, if you're producing munitions, uh, supplies for the American military, they're being used to shoot workers in other countries, you know, you're, 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 it was a left-wing socialist a communist um, pamphlet. Uh, it had all kinds of critical things to say in harsh language about President Wilson and about the, uh, the American, uh, by that point it was not World War I which had ended, but rather the American intervention against the Bolsheviks, uh, mm-hmm. small-scale intervention uh, in Russia. Um, uh, and so the government prosecutes him, uh, and he's convicted, uh, and just the, the court upholds the conviction over a dissent by Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis, the two people who most people would say were the two greatest justices on the court of that time. Holmes dissents and Brandeis joins him. Uh, Holmes doesn't argue that the government isn't authorized to prevent interference with the war effort. In fact, Holmes had written for the court a few months earlier, upholding the convictions of some other people, <clears throat> where the government's argument was, uh, what they're saying is, is an attempt. They're, they're trying to persuade people, not to show up when they get drafted, you know, to be draft dodgers. And Holmes said for the court, you know, the government has the power to prevent interference with the draft. So the government, the Congress is authorized to prevent such interferences. The question then becomes, however, and this, go back to Abrams, uh, so Abrams is convicted under a statute that is authorized, Congress has the power to enact it, but does the First Amendment prevent government from applying that statute to Mr. Abrams? And Justice Holmes said, yes, it does. And the reason is because, although Congress is authorized to pass that criminal statute, the First Amendment says that you can't apply it to someone who's engaged in freedom of speech unless, and this is Holmes's creative uh, contribution, unless what the person is doing poses a clear and present danger to whatever Congress was trying to protect. So for Mr. Abrams to be um, uh, convicted for his conviction to stand in the teeth of the First Amendment, given the fact he's clearly engaged in freedom of speech, it would have he, his pamphlet would have to pose a clear and present danger of interference with the government's ability to supply the armed forces. And Holmes said, "There's no danger of that at all. This, this pamphlet was read by three people, and making that up. You know, this pamphlet. There's no chance the pamphlet's going to affect anything." So even though Congress's law is itself valid on its face, it can't be applied to Mr. Abrams because the First Amendment protects him. Um, let me give you another example. You mentioned guns in schools. Uh, the Supreme Court held in a case called United States against Lopez, uh, Mr. Lopez had, uh, had the bad judgment to carry a gun into a school zone. And he was prosecuted by the federal government under an act of Congress that made it a crime to carry guns in school zones. Uh, His lawyers argued before the U.S. Supreme Court that Congress doesn't have the power to regulate guns in schools. And the Supreme Court agreed, Hmm. said that no, nothing in the Constitution, in particular the Commerce Clause, which is what the government relied on, nothing, including the Commerce Clause, gives Congress the power to speak to the issue. So the act of Congress is invalid and Mr. Lopez cannot be convicted of. The court did not decide whether... The Second Amendment would have prohibited Mr. Lopez's prosecution, but let's suppose that um, uh, let's suppose that it was not a federal act, but rather a state law that someone violates in 2023. They carry a gun onto into a school zone in North Carolina, and that violates a North Carolina criminal statute. North Carolina is authorized to regulate what people do in school zones, so that's not a problem. It's not even really a federal constitutional question is does the Second Amendment protect the person carrying the gun? That's a question of prohibition, and that question would have to be answered.
1: So in that case, the Bill of Rights trumps the Commerce Clause. Well, we mean the Commerce Clause authorizing
0: the North Carolina law would be the North Carolina Constitution. But yes, that's one of the things I explain in the book. Prohibitions, when they apply, always trump authorizations. Hmm. So the fact that government has the affirmative authority to do something only is part of the story. We then have to say, is there some prohibition the government runs into? And if there is, and pro- applying prohibitions is very complex law under things like the First and now the Second Amendment. Uh, uh, but if we conclude that, yes, government has violated the prohibition, then it doesn't matter that government had the initial authority to do it. The prohibition trumps the authorization.
1: Would that be a, that be a, a case of a facial challenge that there is really no argument to be made? I was... If you could explain what a uh, facial challenge is, it sure. would be very helpful.
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay, there, the Supreme Court says there are two kinds of constitutional challenges. Facial challenges are one where the person says this law, either because it's not authorized or because it's prohibited, this law is always unconstitutional in every conceivable set of facts. Mm. I'm slightly oversimplifying, but we don't need to worry about that. Um, An as applied challenge says, well, the law... I, I concede the law is in general valid, but as applied to me, it's unconstitutional. Mr. Lopez's guns and schools challenge, which succeeded, was a facial challenge. He said the, the, the federal law is, in every conceivable situation, unconstitutional because Congress didn't have the power to enact it in the first place. Mm. So just can't, it's, it's a nullity. Abrams was an as-applied challenge. Mr. Abrams wasn't arguing that Congress had no power to punish people whose speech interferes with the draft or supplying the military. That had already been decided earlier that year in, in the government's favor. Mr. Abrams was saying, yeah, the law is constitutional on its face, but not as applied to me. And Justice Holmes said Abrams is right. And by the way, in case you're, somebody's wondering uh, but Holmes was a dissenter. In hindsight, we all agree. Hey, Abrams, excuse me. Holmes was right, and the majority was wrong.
1: I was going to say, in terms of of great judges, that uh, and in the Lopez case, there are several. There's quite a few aspects of it is, is, uh, that, uh, that what really struck me in the book was one that that you show the the power of uh, a single judge in that case, Rehnquist, to lay out new guidelines basically about i believe it was the commerce clause in the lopez case yes. and also the fact that even as he was doing that he was actually creating more leeway than he probably wished or realized at the time for other judges to go with that and run with it in ways that were unanticipated to him is that correct
0: or i wouldn't say the last bit because Rinkus was a very smart um uh, uh lawyer and judge mm. I, I myself predict that and you and I have talked about this uh, in in previous uh, discussions, uh, the general idea. Some, a a small number of of constitutional judges become so significant as authorities on their own because we just recognize that they are such big figures that Mm -hmm. even when we don't need to because of the way that lawyers cite things, we'll put the name of the justice in parentheses. My prediction is Rehnquist gets a a parenthetical of his name in it uh, in the future. Because he's a very, very big figure in American constitutional law. Um, I think he I think he perfectly well understood that what he was writing w- might lead later judges, lawyers, and judges to do things he didn't anticipate because all smart constitutional lawyers know that.
1: Mm.
0: There's no way to write uh, a constitutional law opinion in a way that all future applications are predictable well,
1: speaking of Red Quest, one of the most interesting and enjoyable aspects of your book is is you make the case of of the good the goodness of I mean the 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 inherent decency of most of the people involved and I wondered if you could discuss um their their own backgrounds in terms of of how that might have influenced their jurisprudence for example you mentioned Rehnquist and he was quite heavily involved in in fact you discuss his his case in about the bombing or the invasion of Cambodia and I just wonder do you th- do you think that the fact that Sandra Day O'Connor had been a state legislator, that Ruth Gator Ginsburg had spent a long time in uh, nonprofit adv- advocacy in the ACLU, and that people like um, R- Justice Roberts were in commercial uh, practice for a long time, does wh- how does that play into their ruling? Is it is it irrelevant? They become on the, they go to the court and that's just not, or does that frame the, does that frame their thinking in some ways, or is that mm-hmm. just unknowable?
0: No, it is knowable, and the answer is yes. In every single case, it frames their thinking. Now, if they're a smart judge doing uh, their job uh, faithfully, uh, they're not simply sitting out there doing what they want. They're trying to reach their own conscientious judgments about the best answer to the legal question before them. But what they think is the best answer is going to be deeply shaped by who they are and their background. So Justice O'Connor is a great example. Justice O'Connor had been um, in state government, both as a legislator and as a a judge, if I remember correctly, Um, and that deeply shaped who she was and what she, uh, and then that deeply shaped the way she approached constitutional law questions when she got on the Supreme Court. Um, Rehnquist had um, been a um, uh, quite partisan Republican, uh uh, before he um went on the court uh but uh he also had been a law clerk to the great justice robert jackson Mm -hmm. which i think had some effect uh long-term effect on the way he approached things and he had had the experience of being president nixon's um the the head of the office of legal counsel which is uh the part of the justice department that provides legal advice to the attorney general and the president and other policymakers rink was been the um Uh, the head of that office. And in that office, Rehnquist did some things that are quite remarkable, particularly, I suspect, remarkable to people who think of him as just a partisan throughout his life. You may remember, President Nixon believed that the president had virtually unlimited power to impound firms, uh, excuse me, funds. In in other words, Congress could vote the money and then the president said, well, I'm not spending the money for that because I don't like that. Assistant Attorney General Rehnquist who served at the pleasure of the president, i.e. Nixon could have fired him at any point. Rehnquist wrote an opinion, which he submitted as testimony to Congress, which said that, no, the president doesn't have this power to impound. In fact, with a few exceptions, the president has to spend money if Congress tells him to. Directly disagreeing with his own boss. And then you mentioned Rehnquist's uh, opinion as head of the Office of Legal Counsel, on Nixon's uh, sending troops into Cambodia, which was highly controversial for all kinds of good reasons. Rehnquist was asked uh, his opinion on whether that was lawful or not. Rehnquist concluded, yeah, it was lawful. And the cynic or the person determined to find partisan illegitimate behavior, wherever they can, can, would say, well, what did you expect Rehnquist to say? What was he gonna do, say that Nixon had acted unlawfully? Well, he had already shown he was willing to say that Nixon was wrong about things. But still, what's the answer? Maybe he just, did he have any choice but to say no? Well, I don't know about whether he had a good choice or not, but let's not worry about that. Let's look at what he wrote. Because remember I said, the way to detect intellectual corruption, to tell that someone's not doing their job right, is to see what they say and see if it makes sense. If you read Rehnquist's opinion concluding that Nixon had the power, the thing that strikes you, if you know a lot about the constitutional law of war and peace and military action, which is that happens, I do. The striking thing about it is how hard Nixon labor, excuse me, not Nixon, Rehnquist labors to explain Congress's role and to defend Congress's role and to reject the argument that the president, because he's commander in chief, has all military power. The opinion, in other words, does indeed come to the conclusion for very specific reasons This that this particular act of the president as command-in-chief was lawful, and the basic reason is because Congress had authorized the defense of South Vietnam. So Congress had authorized the president to act, and, Nixon, and Rink was included, all the president did in the Cambodian incursion was to carry out Congress's act saying, defend South Vietnam. Uh, and on the way to getting to that resolution, Rehnquist again and again explains how Congress must play a role, has a role. Most of the time when Congress limits the president as commander chief, the president must obey Congress's limits. Um, that's an opinion by someone who's turning into, in fact, had already, I think, gotten there, into a great constitutional lawyer. Now, that doesn't mean Rehnquist was always right. Rehnquist come had a different background than mine, and therefore, sometimes I thought he was wrong about things, but he's a he turned into a great constitutional lawyer.
1: And I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with the author of the book, The Practice of American Constitutional Law, H. Jefferson Powell. And getting um, on the point of, of Rehnquist, you, you just mentioned that he worked for Robert Jackson, and you also talk about Jackson's greatness. I wonder if you could talk about, he's, he's really not remembered by the average, or even known about by the average reader, I would say these days, or vaguely maybe, but could you talk about Jackson a little bit and about how Rehnquist might be related to Jackson's thinking?
0: Absolutely. Jackson um, Jackson had been a uh, uh, he didn't go to law school. He may have been the last justice of whom that's true. Um, that's
1: what uh, Wikipedia said. I looked him up. So
0: <laughs> oh, really, I'm um, glad I got it right. Then <laughs> um, he had been a successful lawyer. He was a smart guy. Learned law in a law office. Um, was a strong supporter of FDR. Entered the FDR administration, uh, first in a lesser job, then he ends up being Solicitor General. The Solicitor General is nowadays the number four officer in the Department of Justice, but the SG looms large because he or she is the person in charge of representing the United States in the Supreme Court. So even though it, he's, he or she's number four in the, in the department, in terms of uh, attention, uh, he or she's next to the AG, the Attorney General himself or herself. Um, So, Jackson was Solicitor General. He was such a great Solicitor General that one of the justices joked he should be made Solicitor General for life, (laughs)
1: uh,
0: because he was a great advocate. He was a great advocate because he was, number one, eloquent, and number two, intellectually honest, as well as intellectually powerful, and to be a great constitutional lawyer, eloquence and intellectual honesty, and of course sheer horsepower, that's what you need. FDR then made him Attorney General, and then appointed him to the Supreme Court as an Associate Justice, where Jackson wrote many memorable opinions. Now,
1: and I've read, FDR, by the way, I also read that Jackson was the only person to hold those three positions: Solicitor General, Attorney General, and Supreme Court Justice. Which is, yeah, a, that's right. A fun, um, trivial, trivial pursuit question. But you know, it's it's a
0: it's a mark of the person's stature. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, jackson could be prickly and he and justice hugo black who was also a great constitutional lawyer didn't get along very well and there were some some severe tensions between them uh so there were stormy aspects to jackson's uh uh, 14 or whatever it was years on the on the bench but his legacy uh is a set of constitutional law opinions that are as powerful and some of them as influential as those written by anybody else in the history of the court. Um, In fact, uh, in one of my books, I wrote a book about the legality of targeted killing by the American government. Uh, And one of the chapters early on is an attempt to bring anybody who's interested in this particular issue up to speed about how constitutional arguments are put together. And I use McCulloch against Maryland, the John Marshall opinion, and Justice Jackson's concurrence in the Still Seizure case from 1952, I use those as the two opinions to explain constitutional law to the reader. Hmm. Um, so Jackson's uh, a, a huge significance to constitutional lawyers. It's not surprising of course, that he's not well-remembered by other people um, because his significance is more in the tools he gave us to think about constitutional questions than it is in uh, particular decisions he he authored. Um, uh, he was not was never the chief justice, which gets you some attention almost by definition. And for example, in Youngstown, the uh, framework of analysis that Justice Jackson gave us in the Youngstown still seizure case is now accepted by the entire Supreme Court as controlling on the matter it addresses. Mm. So everybody agrees Jackson had it right. Mm. At the time in 1952, Jackson was writing from himself alone.
1: Mm. Oh, that's no other judge that.
0: joined his opinion.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. I, I I think it was interesting too that you make the point in the book that many of them, uh, a, a good constitutional advocate, either either a judge or a, or a defense attorney or a, or a solicitor general, is arguing. For several audiences in that case was who was Jackson writing for the seal because your case, the American public or future presidents or or Congress. And, and one thing that was interesting, too, I, I found in your book, I'm interrupting myself, but oh. I found it really fascinating that you make the point that the uh, uh, the president has the Office of Legal Counsel, but Congress has no statutory Authority to turn to is that is that one of the reasons that maybe um, you, you say in the book too that Congress in recent decades in our lifetime have become much less interested than those in the nineteenth their counterparts in the nineteenth century and earlier were fascinated by constitutional questions and would debated them robustly and vigorously but they don't now I, I realize I've thrown a lot at you but who who who, well, who who is who is who are they who is the Supreme Court writing for their colleagues let me, let me just... or posterity or.
0: That's a fabulous question. Let me just throw in one thing about something else you said. Um, I'm not. It's not that there are no legislative branch officers. It's that there's no. There's not what I think there should be. I think Congress should create an office that would serve both the um, Senate and the House. That would specifically have the task of being the parallel to the office of legal counsel in the Justice Department. That is to say, it would be lawyers who were dedicated to providing the very best legal advice to. Um, to the members of, of Congress of both houses. Uh, and there's not something that's exactly parallel to, to legal counsel in the Congress, and I think they should have it. Um, okay, who, is it, who are justices writing for? Well, it depends. They're always writing for other judges. I mean, if, if is the judge justice is writing for, uh, for, the, for the court, the justice, of course, is writing for the, the courts below, telling them how they got it wrong or got it right, other lower courts, because they're so that when the Supreme Court decides something, that's then precedent that other lower that the lower courts have to obey. Um, so you're always writing for other judges, but that's not the only thing you may be writing for. It's sometimes said the dissenters, and you think about it, you've lost. In fact, imagine it's uh, it's Abrams, Abrams against the 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 Espionage case from uh, Justice Holmes, his opinion is famous. Uh Holmes was losing seven to two. Mr. Abrams' conviction was being upheld. You might say to yourself, why do he waste the time writing an opinion when you know his friend Louis Brandeis is going to sign it, but everybody else is going to ignore it and it doesn't affect Mr. Abrams and it can't be used as present because it's a seven to two dissent. Hmm. It's sometimes said that dissents are appeals to the future.
1: Hmm.
0: And Abrams is a great example. We all now agree that Holmes was right and the majority the seven justices majority was wrong. Holmes's thinking is what drives modern all of modern American First Amendment law, not the Abram's majority opinion, which is just you know is dust. So a, a dissenter or a concurring judge, a concurring judge is somebody who goes along with what the court has done but wants to write separately, and there are different flavors of concurrence that i won 't bore you with. Um, both a dissenter and a concurring justice may be writing for the future. Yes, I didn't get my way today on the outcome or the reasoning, but I hope in the future I will. Hmm. Um, and yes, sometimes uh, I think judges are writing for the American public. Very famously, we now know Chief Justice Earl Warren deliberately wrote the great Brown v. Board of Education case's opinion of the court, which he authored. He wrote it very simply in terms that he hoped any literate American could understand. And he did that because, of course, he and the other justices knew that this decision was going to be intensely, intensely controversial. Many people, at least white people, were going to be very unhappy about it. And he wanted something that everybody on all sides could understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Justice Jackson was in part writing for the American people because if you read his great still seizure opinion, it has a lot of things to say about how you and I as citizens should think about our republic. Mm -hmm. And in addition, I think it's very clear that Jackson was writing for executive branch lawyers.
1: Yes, that's right. Don't even think about it, in other words, for them, the, the future president, don't even think about trying what Truman's trying here.
0: Well, yes, absolutely. But also, how do you think about the questions that you're going to have to deal with. And he, refer, he, he alludes any number of times in his opinion to the fact that he had been an executive branch advice giver. He'd been the attorney general. He'd been the person that FDR was saying, can I do that? Can I not do that?
1: Well, um, in terms of judges who, who, wrote, who, who they were writing for, who, who, was, who would you say that Justice Scalia was writing for? And did, and did he have an, is there any one opinion of his, well, maybe the Smith case and the religion case or something, but was there something in particular that he said, American people listen to me on this? And was it, and did it work? Um,
0: it, it's always hard to know whether, if you're writing for the American people in part, I think it's always had hard to know whether you had any success. And the odds are probably that you didn't, in part because uh, I don't think Americans Americans care about the outcomes, and that's right. Of course, you know, if abortion may be either the killing of an innocent human life, or if you prevent abortion, you're preventing somebody from exercising a fundamental human right. So, you know, of course, there's a way in which the non-law side of cases is far more important, at least much of the time, than the legal issue. Uh, And so... I think most people just you know they, they care about the outcome. they don't care so much about how you got there um, and so I think a judge is likely always to fail or most of the time to fail if he or she's trying to write for the public in general um Justice Scalia, uh, I give you an example of an opinion that I think he very well may have been trying to uh, address non lawyers it's his uh his opinion in Planned Parenthood against Casey that's the nineteen ninety two um Uh, abortion decision in which a majority of the court uh, reaffirmed the core of Roe against Wade while substantially changing the uh, way that the the doctrine that governed uh, abortion regulations validity. Uh, and Scalia wrote one of the decisions agreeing with uh, the outcome, uh, uh, pretty much, but saying that the majority opinion which reaffirmed Roe was wrong, Roe should have been overruled. And in that, his opinion. Um, Scalia has towards the end a, um, uh, what I think really is addressed to non-lawyers. He talks about uh, how people were willing to leave us alone, us to justice alone, as long as they up, thought we were up here doing law. Uh, but this decision shows we're not up here doing law. Uh, the court is engaged in just uh, uh, imposing its policy preferences on the rest of us, and that's wrong. Um, uh The rhetoric is pretty powerful. Uh, I don't actually think his accusation is correct, and I don't know whether it influenced anybody or not. Uh, Justice Scalia was somebody who cared a lot about um, how his opinions read, by the way. And I can tell you something. I have um, what I may be the only person on the planet who can say this. The last time I was in the Justice Department myself, uh, a job I got was tasked with, which I can explain if you're interested, but doesn't matter, I had the job of reading every opinion that Assistant Attorney General Scalia signed when he was the head of the office of legal counsel uh wrinkles i, d- was I didn't of realize
1: he, i didn't realize he was that's fascinating he
0: was he was president ford's uh, head of olc is the acronym for the legal counsel um and so I, I read every opinion that Scalia uh, signed in the year and a half or whatever he was the head of the office. Uh, one a couple of things struck me one is i assume that most of those or maybe all those opinions were initially drafted by a member of the office other than the head of the office the head of olc is extremely busy and doesn't usually write the opinions him or herself but these opinions were vintage scalia even though they were i'm almost certain drafted by other people his fingerprints are all over them he extensively you know, wrote them because you can hear the voice that we're now familiar with from all his years as Supreme Court justice. Um, And the other thing that struck me is, and Justice Glee is very controversial and and many people on the other side of the political um, uh, boundary uh, from him, I think he was basically an unfortunate figure. Um, But if you read his OLC opinions, you come away saying, this guy's a great technical lawyer. He's getting it right, or he's making, you know, he's handling the questions in responsible, intelligent fashions. Um uh so and, and he's writing there. Um, in those days, when he was writing, OLC opinions were never published. So he's really, and, and except every now and then one was released to the public, but they weren't published. So he was really writing just for whoever, you know, whatever policymaker had asked his his advice. Uh and yet he's writing in a way that you know shows both his flair and his intelligence. Well,
1: it's very helpful to know what what people who be, later became Supreme court justices were doing to develop their own thinking and other roles and what influence they had in other roles. And um, before we leave, before we leave the, the, the judges, because one of the things we, we need to leave the the, the the justices, because another part of your book is the fact that you say a lot of uh, Americans views of, of American constitutional law are overly court centric Supreme court centric. And you make a mm-hmm. wonderful case in the book about, All these other players, as you said, the Office of Legal Counsel and individual advocates. And one of the most moving parts of your book is you talk about as you as you talked about Earl Warren making a moral case. But before that, you make the before he made that famous argument to the moral argument that was preceded by years and years of litigation by the NAACP. And you you draw that out beautifully about how they would just slowly but truly like the tortoise and the hare make the. The, the moral case and the legal case in tandem over and over. I wonder if you could discuss that section of your book. It's really very moving and very interesting because as I read it, I thought of the um, the pro-life movement did very much the same thing about building slowly over decades the, a moral case and a legal case and it was very very comparable, I thought or, or do you not do you not see that?
0: Right oh no, now? totally. no, I, I get that point. And of course, uh, if Justice Ginsburg were with us, she'd say, well, don't forget about the pro-choice <laughs> movement. same thing.
1: Um, As a a woman, I I have been shamefully neglecting the ladies, the women of the court in this discussion.
0: uh, Yes, I I do. uh, I use that as an example, uh, the, 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 the way in which the NAACP eventually undid de jure racial segregation. I use that as an example of the role of persuasiveness and in particular of justice in American constitutional law. The following is not a constitutional law argument. Racial segregation is unjust. That's not. A, you haven't made a legal argument. I think you're right. You think I'm right. Um, it doesn't matter. You've not yet said anything a judge can do anything with, or any other lawyer. So you've got. To, so if what matters to you is the justice or injustice of something, and that always should matter if it's a question of justice or injustice, uh, you've got to find a way that the moral question. Fits into law, and Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the first NAACP chief NAACP chief lawyer, and then Thurgood Marshall, who was his successor, and um, uh, in effect, uh, and then of course later on a justice. Um, Houston and Marshall understood that Marshall is not remembered, by the way, as a great justice for various reasons, uh, but he was a great advocate, mm. He was a great lawyer, and what. Part of what made Houston and Marshall great is they understood in their bones how to weave in together technical argument with, um, uh, with moral passion, well, therefore enabling the moral question to get before the court in a way the court could deal with it, because the court was no, not being asked simply to rule on morality, and people disagree about moral questions. Um, it was being asked to rule on a question of law. And so over a series of, of, of decisions over time, uh, Houston and then Marshall, leading the NAACP, uh, whittled away at the 1896 decision Plessy against Ferguson that had said, the jury racial segregation does not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Plessy had said in 1896, in a stunning example of hypocrisy, uh, that uh, it's saw no reason to think that the racial segregation at issue there was uh, uh, unjust, was unconstitutional because the law provided for separate but equal railroad cars. Now, the one dissenter, the first Justice Harlan, in a bitterly brilliant uh, opinion full of sarcasm, uh, says no one would be so wanting in candor as to um, deny that this law is aimed at degrading Black American citizens. Mm-hmm. No one wanting, would be so wanting in candor except for his Colleagues who are denying that. Anyway, um, so you've got this separate but equal mantra from the original pro-segregation decision, and what Houston and Marshall's strategy is to, again and again, carefully choosing your fight in situations where you don't, you're not likely to, to evoke the, uh, you know, racist feelings or uh, conservative inclinations of Supreme Court justices. They get before the court a situation where you can't say. That the treatment is equal. Mm-hmm. the separation is unequal and they and so they're what they're trying to do is gradually whittle away the courts the the the, the, the good sense of saying that you could have separate but equal and treat people equally mm-hmm. uh, and and they succeeded doing that before they actually get to Brown. Uh, they, they by a couple of decisions before Brown they've reached the point where the Supreme Court is saying that you got to look at realities the question of is something equal? If it's if it's, racially, if it's racial, if there's racial segregation, the question is whether it's equal treatment of both races. Um, needs to be you need to look at the realities of the situation and not you know just the form. Uh, and once you get that in, you know, in a couple more decisions, you've got Brown against the Board of Education, uh, and it's a it's a stunning, beautiful example of great lawyering. If they'd walked into court the very first case in the series and said, Plessy against Ferguson was wrong. Please overrule it. They were it was lost. we were probably 9-0. By the time they went through the decisions, got the court to see again and again that Plessy doesn't make sense. And also, by the way, in the course of doing so, how unjust racial segregation was. Uh, by the time they're at the end of that process, they win 9-0. Yes,
1: I think that's a good example of in your, in your book, you make the point very clearly to the reader that you say lawyers are problem solvers in that case the NAACP said framed it as a problem this and that they had to engage they had no choice because they 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 didn't create the problem but they they framed it as a problem which maybe it hadn't been I think that and also in your in your book that you make the point that again that that might have intrigued and appealed to their sense of honor as as lawyers that this is a problem and I think Ginsburg is probably a, a, an exemplar of that—that that of saying that many of the the gender-inflected uh, laws in American legal sy- in the American legal system were a problem that they hadn't been considered a problem before. Would that be—is that correct about how she oh, approached yes. things? And
0: oh yes, there's a there's a there's a parallel. The, the interesting difference, and this this tells us something interesting about constitutional law too, and important. Um, the process by which the court goes from saying there's no problem at all between you know discrimination on the basis of gender to saying that discrimination on the basis of gender is almost as difficult to defend as discrimination on the basis of race. That process takes much less time. And the reason for that is in part because the court had already gone through over decades, several decades, the process of coming to understand that treating people in reality unequally as a matter of race, and that includes separating them by segregation. The court had come to see that that doesn't make any sense legally. And so it was, the court was much quicker to be able to see it doesn't make any sense to treat people unequally based on gender.
1: Are there, any, are there any cases on the horizon that, that average people should watch for as, as a problem being framed that is in the process or work in progress that something is going to come up as a problem that maybe we don't consider a problem? Or you, I guess you can't, you're not a fortune teller. I just wonder if, because we saw you're that with married. same-sex marriage what suddenly became a problem to some people. And...
0: That's a good example of something. We moved very quickly in in light of history from a position where no serious constitutional lawyer would have thought there was any constitutional question about limiting marriage to opposite sex couples to it's the law of the land. Um, That illustrates by the way, in part the way that the Supreme court's decisions take place in a political and social context. And that context shapes and limits what the court itself does. Um, uh, You know, I, the problem with problems that we don't see is we don't see them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll give you, though, an example that of something that I think is a huge problem uh, and is perceived, but there's no current movement to do something about it. Uh, Congress, there, there are many acts of Congress that allow the president to exercise unusual authority or to administer laws and uh, unusual ways, um, upon the president finding that there's a state of emergency or there's some, you know, many other findings. Uh, Congress got worried about how many such statutes it had created in the wake of President Nixon's problems and passed legislation in the 70s that was supposed to fix this and then failed. So we have many, many statutes to give the executive all kinds of Unusual based on the statutes, as they ordinarily would be read, give the president all kinds of unusual authority based on the president making certain kinds of findings. Um, I don't think in general, executive branch, the president or executive branch officers yeah, reach decisions about such things uh, in bad faith. But as Justice Souter said in an opinion uh, in a case called Hamdi, uh, the executive you expect the executive to see emergencies even when they aren't really there, because that's what the emergency, that's part of what the executive is there for. We want it to be hyper-cautious about things. We want it to find crises where there's no crisis or anticipate problems when there's actually no problem. Um, so the executive is a bad place to leave the decision about what whether to make um, uh, whether to go into crisis mode, as it were. And yet Congress has set up a world in which. The executive can do that lots um, and not violate an act of Congress. Now, as I think about it, most of that's not a constitutional problem. It's a problem of Congress having given the executive too much leeway. But it connects up to a straightforward constitutional problem. And let me state the problem by telling you something that the listeners may find surprising. It is arguable that the single biggest ticket constitutional law question is when can the United States government the United States into war, mm. when can we use military force? Um, the Supreme Court has managed to make it way over 200 years now and give us the number of really useful Supreme Court decisions. Let me see. One, two, three. The number of really useful Supreme Court decisions on this huge Constitutional Law question probably can be counted on one hand. Mm. And when I teach the issue, one of the cases I teach is uh, a John Marshall opinion from, uh, I've forgotten whether it's 1804, 1805. Um, It's not necessarily the most memorable of Marshall's many opinions, but it's because there's so few others. Mm. And it says things I want my students to be able to start thinking about. So we we have a law of war and peace, constitutional law of war and peace, in which the Supreme Court has had almost nothing to say or very little to say. That's not good. Hmm. And I say that, by the way, as somebody, I spent a lot of time in the 90s and then again 2011 and 2012 in the Justice Department as an executive branch advice giver. Um, oh, no. Law professors who, uh, who you know work on executive branch power issues would without any hesitation say, oh, Powell, he's a pro-executive power guy. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quick to find ways to whittle down the president's lawful, what well, I think the president's lawful constitutional authority, but I am deeply unhappy with the state of the war and peace law, and I think the Supreme Court needs to speak to it. The court ducks it over and over again. It ducked it during Vietnam. It ducked it during a case brought by a soldier who was ordered to deploy to, I think, Iraq in the ISIS operation and was trying to refuse. Um, it keeps ducking the question. They need to stop that. Now, you made the point, and it's central to my thinking. Don't get too court centric. Uh, Other people play important roles. And I gave you the, I talked to you about the uh, Rehnquist Cambodian incursion opinion. Uh, Oftentimes, executive branch lawyers do splendid jobs trying to come to good faith resolutions about these tough issues, including war and peace issues. Um, uh, But where lawyers, but in something as vital as war and peace, we really need the, the, the lawyers who aren't in a political situation to have the final word. Because the lawyers in the executive branch, lawyers advising members of Congress, they're in a political context that uh, even when they stand up against pressure, they're under pressure. The judges are not supposed to be under any pressure, and I don't see any reason for them to feel that they are. They should just get it right.
1: I was going to say you refer to your your own experience a little bit. I was fascinated in the the bio of you on your on the the Duke University page where you're where you're listed where your background is 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 discussed that you've worked in state government in North Carolina, you've worked in executive branch. Are, is your breadth of experience unusual among law professors or is that fairly common at the level of legal scholarship that you practice that people go um, in and out of government or It's not uncommon.
0: It's not. Super duper common. Okay. Uh, having worked for uh, state government is quite uncommon among uh, law professors. Um, uh, we state government tends to get uh, by a fair number of people in the legal academy tends to be sort of looked down on, hmm. second rate. Um, you, as you can tell from my tone, I don't share that. <laughs> um, it is true that the federal government, because of its prestige and size, often can attract you know the the, the best talent and things like that. But in my time in state government, I worked with fabulous lawyers. We were doing our very best job. I think we were, you know, we we were writing briefs. I was in a litigating uh, section. We were writing briefs that were just as good as the briefs on the other side, including ones by uh, federal government uh, attorneys. Um, uh, state and state governments do so much. Americans you know, the, the even, the, I start to the evening news, but that just dates me, doesn't it? Um, the news can easily lead you to think that every, all the action in government is on the federal level. Well, you know, a huge amount of life is in fact administered, regulated by state government. Mm. So what goes on in state governments is enormously important. It should get more attention than it does. Uh, and um, I always try to encourage my students to think about state government as a possible um, place to go. For, for work, for rewarding, important work.
1: Do you think that's going to be even truer in the the post-Dobbs era where so much of abortion litigation is now shifted to the states, and are the states ready for that? because it's, it's it looks as though it's it, it, state legislators are going to be more active and they'll need more constitutional actually, or do they are they are they are they freer of constitutional law in a way than they were say three years ago? Well,
0: uh, on the particular issue of abortion, yes, of course, what the Dobbs decision does is uh, is shift the issue entirely uh, or almost entirely uh, over to state law. and that means state legislators and state courts are going to be the chief venues for legal debate and political debate too, of course, about um, about abortion regulation. Um, are the states ready for it? Well, state courts differ in um, uh, their quality. Many of them are superb. Uh, the superb courts, regardless of the, uh, the political context in which they're working, will do a better job than the less good courts, obviously. Um, state legislatures vary. Um, I'll ride a hobby horse just for a moment. The Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, decided a few years ago that political gerrymandering is non-justiciable. So in other words, no matter how egregiously a legislature draws the, the electoral districts to advantage the majority party and disadvantage the party that at the moment is out of power, no matter how egregious that is, the court said the issue cannot be decided, questioned in federal court. I think the court was dead wrong. I was then the director of the Duke First Amendment Clinic, and we filed a, a friend of the court brief of the court explaining to it uh, <laughs> why it could decide, lawfully decide gerrymandering cases and how it should go about doing so. We did not persuade a majority of the court, apparently. Um, well, clearly. Uh, I think the court was completely wrong. Uh, but go beyond that federal constitutional law question. Uh, political gerrymandering is an evil thing. Mm. I don't care which party's doing it. Mm. And my word for any anybody listening is... If you like political gerrymandering, stop doing it. Mm. Stop liking it. Mm. Stop voting for people to do it. Whichever party. Because political gerrymandering, which can be done now to a, with a, an unbelievably fine-toothed comb because of computers,
1: mm.
0: uh, political gerrymandering is a way of balking the will of the electorate.
1: Mm.
0: And, it, in a, and particularly in a hyper-polarized world, and unfortunately, and I'm not a very I'm not somebody who's in, who's instinctively in favor of polarization. We live in a hyperpolarized political climate where people tend to have very great difficulty entertaining the, the fact the idea that somebody they disagree with is intelligent and acting in good faith and a decent person. In that world, to have legislatures have an open season on drawing lines so the temporary legislative majority can lock itself into power for the indefinite future, by the way it draws the districts, That that that's disastrous. It's mm-hmm. terrible. That's the biggest, I should have immediately said that, that's the biggest constitutional problem we face. And at the moment, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, uh, for the moment, that federal courts won't do anything about it. Mm-hmm.
1: What, what is what is the status of the case being argued in this session that was just argued I guess several days ago about the the empowered uh, I forget the term but the empowered empowerment of state legislatures overriding the uh, inter, the well they would consider it interference but the role of state trial uh, state courts, but is could that right. be argued that, that that is more democratic to say, well, at least as a, as a voter, I have more control. I have some control over my legislators and I have nothing over no control or say in the state. Or is that or is that to my protection? Well, more, I Most mean, state
0: judges are elected. So, yes, the electorate has, um, oh, okay. has in most states, you can throw the rascals out with respect to the courts as just as you can with respect to the legislators. Um. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, you're referring to the case.
1: Uh, well, if, if that's true, Jeff, I'd like to interrupt. Then why is it such a concern for if, 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 if all of them are equally empowered as Democratic actors? Why would it matter? Why, are, why, are, why is the left up in arms about it? And Why is the right so intent on it?
0: Um, I think I'm going to what I'm going to say is not a left or right argument. Mm. It's just like my what I said about gerrymandering. It's good. It's a good government argument. I think it's the case that people, the, the motivations, the political motivations behind the idea that uh, the court the U.S. Supreme Court should say that a state legislature, and when it uh, makes these kinds of electoral decisions, uh, it cannot be interfered with by the state courts in the name of the state constitution. Uh, I think the, the motive the political motivation by, behind people who think that's who have political reasons for favoring that is the thought that, well, yeah, maybe in our state we have, I, my party has a majority, both in the legislature uh, and on the courts, but the, the, the state judges, you know, the trouble with them is they're likely to try to decide questions about, you know, is this lawful or not based on law? And I don't want them to decide. Si- I don't want the decision to be based on law. I want it to be decided on my side winning. Yeah. So the, the problem is the state courts, there's too much risk that state courts will make proper, legitimate legal decisions, and they won't always go the way that the person advocating the political position wants them to go. Um, now, the people opposing it, many of them have the political motivations just the other way. Uh, so it's, uh, <clears throat> political debates are inevitably political on both sides. Um, but the good government answer is, I think, that we don't want... The state legislature, which ordinarily will have a majority of some party or the other, <clears throat> we don't want it free to control the process by which the state legislature and everybody else is elected. We want some limits on that. Yes, things have to be set up by the legislature, sure. Um, but state and federal constitution, state constitutions, um, Put limits on what government can do and they ought to be those limits ought to be respected here above all else because when the legislature is engaged in controlling how the legislature is chosen well i'm just you know to state the problem is to identify the problem
1: well thank you that's very helpful and i have taken up a lot of your time and i'd like now to ask you the traditional final question on the new books network and that is what are you working on now well uh
0: several things. Uh, I'm finishing up a a little book, uh, which doesn't have a title because I haven't been able to think of a good one. The working subtitle is A Companion to the First Year in Law School. Uh, And the idea of the book is that uh, in most American law schools and in most courses, uh, the first year in law school in particular is an exercise in inductive reasoning. In other words, I don't stand up there and lecture at my students and tell them the answers and they faithfully write them down. I ask them questions and I give them things to read and they have to figure out the answers themselves. I think as a basic pedagogical strategy, that makes great sense in law school. And I can tell you the reasons if you're interested. Um, But there are a fair number of things that any law student would like to know um, and really be benefited by knowing that I don't see any reason in making him or her suss out by, you know, having to figure out, dig out the answer by reading stuff that isn't designed to tell them the answer. I think there's a fair body of stuff that you can still have the basic inductive reasoning pedagogy and yet tell them some things. And so this little book is meant to just tell them those things. Um, and then I've got a couple of um, uh, research projects. Uh, I mentioned one of them to you in, a, um, in an email. Um, I'm slowly working on a book that once again, I don't. I'm bad at titles. Um, uh, it doesn't have a. Its working title is Constitutional Aphorisms. And Aphorisms. I'm sure that won't end up being the title. But what I'm trying to do is, well, the premise of what I'm trying to do is, there are sentences or paragraphs scattered throughout American constitutional law and history that themselves, uh, and you always want to, you always want to be concerned when you take things out of context. But sometimes there's a sentence or a paragraph that is so full of meaning that it's worth thinking about on its own even if you in large measure detach it from its context
1: like clear and um, present danger i suppose was that was that holmes's original formulation Holmes.
0: yeah Yep, um i'll give you an example i love and it's in the book and uh the judge who wrote it got uh one of those parentheticals in order for, to indicate that i think he's one of he's a great judge and most of your Uh, listeners, no matter how much they know about constitutional law, we've never heard of them. Um, The sentence is, constitutions are instruments of practical governance, not themes for speculation. Hmm. Uh, The judge was a man named William Gaston. He was a pre-Civil War Supreme Court justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court and a very great judge. Um, But outside of North Carolina, I'm probably not remembered and not much remembered here.
1: Could you repeat his name? I didn't quite catch it.
0: William Gaston, G-A-S-T-O-N, G a s t o n. very, very great judge, and known at the time, nationally known, Mm who's had a national reputation, um, uh, and an admirable and interesting human being, too, let me add. Uh, But think about what he said. He said, constitutions are instruments of practical governance and not themes for speculation. As I think about that, that tells me something affirmative. When I approach a constitutional question, I need to keep in mind that the answer, the solution to the constitutional problem needs to be one that's serviceable, one that renders the Constitution workable. Justice Jackson and his Youngstown opinion talks about workable government. The Constitution is is an instrument of practical governance. It's meant to make the enterprise work. Now, one of the ways the enterprise works is by respecting those limits on power that we the people have imposed. So it's not the question of, of a practical governance is not simply one of what's efficient. But my, my answer as a good constitutional lawyer is one that serves the, the practical governance, not some theory, ingenious speculation. He, he may have said ingenious too, not a theme for ingenious speculation. Um, uh, that's really where I, making so many smart and famous and important people mad, tell the originalist and their opponents you're fighting over something that's not nearly as important as you think. They're fighting about it in large measure because it's such a great theme, such a great theoretical debate. Is constitutional law limited to the original public meaning, or is it uh, it a matter of a living constitution that can adapt to change? Those are great theoretical questions that lots of people like talking about. Like Judge Gaston, I want to solve the problems,
1: practically. Yes, I was going to say, when you were discussing what you tell your students, too, that one of the fascinating things in your book is you say that your first year law students are surprised that a lot of that is not grand and overarching constitutional grandiose frameworks, it's um, precedent and judicial and principles and doctrines that are worked out by people using again, what you say in the book is helpful too, is the basic toolkit that everyone shares. That I thought mm-hmm. that was a very helpful analogy. That everybody is, I mean, it's it's just a fact. You say that 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 they're they're not coming at this out of the blue and with their idea with ideological baggage. They have to work with the basic toolkit. And if they don't, they'll be called out for, as you say, intellectual uh corruption. <laughs> so
0: Hope, oh, oh, can I can I follow on that just by sure. one thing, um, and that's getting at something that's absolutely crucial to me and central to the book, which is we share we Americans, in the first instance, American lawyers, including judges, but in the second instance, all of us, we share this common practice, this common tradition of resolving problems, constitutional problems, using the toolkit that we all share. We disagree theoretically, about originalism versus living constitutionalism. We disagree about politics. We're left-wing and right-wing, progressive and and conservative. We disagree about all kinds of things. We share this practice, this tradition. But that practice and tradition are not graven in stone. They could erode. They could disappear. And if our cynicism and our uh, hyper-polarized desire, I want to win at all costs and I want the opposing party to lose or the opposing ideology to lose at all costs. If we get stay in that mindset long enough, we will erode the tradition, we will damage the practice, and then we will have damaged something that we share that is of crucial significance in maintaining this as a community and not simply as a system of, you know, whichever side had the good luck to win the last election gets to run everything at the over top of the other side. And I feel passionately about that. uh, And I wish all of the rest of the country would feel passionate about it too.
1: Well, with that, I will just, and I think that it does, it is conveyed in the book and I felt very heartened as a citizen, because even though I'm probably much more conservative than many other readers, I just felt that you portrayed, everyone from Wenquist to Senator Day O'Connor to Thurgood Marshall, as all caring about the Constitution, wanting to see it implemented to fulfill its promise to to the American people. And I think that's a very, it's a very inspiring book. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, H. Jefferson Powell, author of The Practice of American Constitutional Law. And thank you, listeners. And thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Bob.